Hi, it's Andrew Doyle here, writer, comedian and spiked columnist. Before we start the Brendan O'Neill show, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my own new podcast, Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. As we all know, the culture wars have exploded into the mainstream and they're having an impact on everyone's lives, whether we like it or not. So in this podcast, I want to get beyond the headlines, beyond the partisan bickering, to find out what's really going on. In the latest episode, I talked to Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay about the origins of all the worst woke ideas. So to listen to the episode, simply search for Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle through your podcast provider, or you can find it on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. And while you're there, why not subscribe as well so you don't miss any future episodes? That's Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. See you there. Now, back to The Brendan O'Neill Show. It's not anybody else's job to raise your children. It's not anybody else's job to pick the trash up from in front of your home. Take responsibility for your life. It's not fair. It's not fair. But it's the way of the world. If you want to walk with dignity, if you want to be truly equal, people talk about equality. White people cannot give black people equality. Black people have to actually earn equal status. You have to rest with the hard work, with your bare hands. You have to make yourselves equal. No one can make you equal. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Glenn Lowry. Glenn is an American economist, author, and commentator. He was the first ever tenured black professor of economics at Harvard University, and he is currently a professor of social sciences and professor of economics at Brown University. Glenn has written extensively on issues of racial inequality, welfare, and income distribution. He is a widely read commentator and much respected broadcaster. He is, in my mind, one of the best and most subtle observers right now on the issue of race in the United States. Glenn, I want to start off by asking you about the letter that Brown University sent out to academics and students in the kind of whirlwind of protesting and rioting after the killing of George Floyd. And the Brown University letter said that structures of power, deep-rooted histories of oppression, as well as prejudice, outright bigotry and hate, directly and personally affect the lives of millions of people in this nation every minute and every hour. So it was a very depressing missive. And you wrote a response. You wrote an open letter in response in which you said that the Brown University letter, you teach at Brown, of course, had made you feel distressed and angry. Can you just describe to us what it was about that letter, what it was about the description of that minute by minute oppression that people allegedly face, what it was about that letter that that rattled you in the way that it did? It was not only the uh, description that you quoted, though that does capture the spirit of it, the letter was very, shall we say, political. It offered a particular read on the contemporary event, namely the killing of George Floyd by that police officer in Minneapolis, but also a read of this, this moment in American history and the role that race and racial inequality plays within it. It was very prescriptive. It, it, it had a point of view. 
And that in and of itself would have been fine had it been expressed as the point of view of a particular person. But the fact that the letter was signed by the top administration of the university, I mean, 20-odd people in lockstep from the president all the way down to the dean of the School of Public Health, with all of the administrators and all of the academic officers of the university signing on to it. And it could have been written, I don't know, by a Black Lives Matter press agent. It's arguable. Many of those things are arguable. I don't know that you want to go into that. But my my objection to the letter was, you put this forward as the official position of the Brown University administrative leadership. And we're a university. We're not a political party. We're not even a news enterprise where CNN or the New York Times newsroom might say, here's what we're doing with respect to this issue. We're a university. And and I felt that it was a groupthink imposition on us. And it, in a way, dared anyone to say no, to have a contrary opinion, because it, as it was framed, seemed to put forward as the brown values a particular position. So a person if in my classroom or uh, even in an interview like this, if I were to voice a contrary view about these things, I would feel that I was somehow out of step with the institution. I don't know how in my classroom I could expect my students to maintain an open mind and to debate with each other about these matters. Someone might say, well, no, I, I don't quite think it's uh, structures of oppression that are ever present in the lives of people of color. I think that's an exaggeration. A person might think that. But how would they stand up and say it in the classroom when the university's president has made such a such a pronouncement? So those were the reasons that I was distressed so much by that. One thing that really struck me about your open letter and response to that letter is where you you talked about the assertion of truths as if these truths that were put out in the Brown University letter, as if they were self-evident, unquestionable. As you say just now, it did sound a bit like groupthink. But one point you raised, you questioned implicitly in your response the idea that racial domination and white supremacy define life in America, even today, a century and a half following the end of slavery. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about the current moment and the current discussion of race and the current Black Lives Matter uprising and all the things that we've seen explode into the public sphere over the past few months, do you think that one of the problems with the current discussion is is an element of fatalism, this notion that nothing has changed in America, nothing has improved, life is as bad for black people in the United States as it ever was. And I think one of the issues there, that certainly one of the problems I have with that argument, is that it seems to completely undermine all the huge leaps forward that were made by people who took political action or devised political protests or set up political campaigns over the past 150 to 200 years. So is there something about this narrative of the original sin of racism that apparently infects the American Republic? Do you think there's a there's a kind of ugly fatalism and anti-humanism to that view? Well, Brendan, th- those were your words. It's provocative to put it that way. I, I wouldn't necessarily have used those words, but I do think there's something to what you say. There's a, a sentence in the letter that says, we have been here before, and in fact, we have never left. And that's very much in the spirit of what you're raising a concern about right now, because clearly, I mean, we have left. Okay, I mean, we have left where we have been before as a society. 
And fatalism is deadly. It's deadly to hope. It's deadly to a vision about the future. It's deadly to a sense of agency and empowerment that one can do something about one's life and one's circumstance. First of all, let me simply stipulate or note the changes have been monumental. Just within my lifetime, I'm in my 70s. Just within, I was born in 1948. Just within my lifetime, the changes have been astronomical, unbelievable. Barack Obama was voted president of the United States, you know, whereas at mid 20th century, the modal occupation of African American men was farm laborer. And for women, it was domestic servant. That's within my lifetime. So we now have a politics of woke anti racism sweeping the elites of the country in the academy, in the press, in the entertainment industries, and so on and so forth. They're all of basically one Oscar so white. This was a movement not that long ago. Shut down STEM. This is another hashtag. The phenomenon of Black Lives Matter itself. I mean, these are all indicia of a genuine transformation of the of the landscape here. So, so I think that has to be said. And the last thing I'll say about this is I think I understand why people are talking about 150 or 400 years of unrelenting oppression. And the reason is that notwithstanding the transformation of American society that was the civil rights movement, blacks are still lagging behind in a lot of different areas. We're underrepresented in many of the elite professions. We are overrepresented in many of those who are at the bottom of society, in uh, trouble with the law, poverty, and so on. The closing of the gap hasn't happened the way that people might have hoped that it would happen. And they've latched onto a narrative, and the narrative is essential white supremacist racism. Also, politics haven't uh, gone so good for uh, for the progressive element. I mean, the advent of Donald Trump gives a sense of this, we're under siege, we're in an emergency. There, you know, But we, we have a lot of problems and we don't quite know what to do about them. The elites, I think, the leadership classes are exasperated and they're out of ideas and we've descended into a kind of finger pointing so I, I think it's really very sad because the problems are quite serious. One of the issues, I think, with the Black Lives Matter movement, which has very ironically moved like an imperial juggernaut across the world, I kind of now consider it one of American capitalism's most successful exports. You know, it's very popular in the United Kingdom. It's made huge waves in Germany. In Australia, people who want to campaign for Aboriginal rights now have to do so under the banner of Black Lives Matter. It's become this all-consuming global phenomenon, you know, that spreads through social media networks and celebrity influence and, and all these other mechanisms. And one of the things that the, the global juggernaut of Black Lives Matter has done is give the distinct impression to people around the world that America remains a structurally racist country. Now, as you have just said, there are clearly issues that impact on African-American communities. There is clearly underrepresentation in certain professions, and there are clearly numerous problems. But one of the things that you've written about and spoken about incredibly well, I think, is the hollowness of the term structural racism, because it becomes almost this mantra that is wheeled out to explain every single problem that faces particular communities or even particular individuals. If someone doesn't get 
the pay rise they think they deserve, that must be down to structural racism. If there aren't enough black people on a board of directors, that must be structural racism. Issues to do with poverty and a lack of achievement in education tend to be described through the sphere of structural racism. Explain to us why you have an issue with that term and why it's possible that it's overuse makes it kind of a meaningless way of understanding contemporary problems. Well, I'm given the saying these days, I think it's both a bluff and a bludgeon. It's <laughs> it, a, a bluff in the sense that it offers an ex- explanation that's not an explanation at all. And in effect, dares the listener to come back. So for example, if I say blacks are too many in prison in the United States, that's structural racism. What you're being dared to say is, no, blacks are too many amongst the criminals. And that's why they're in the prison. It's not the system's fault. It's their fault. They're daring you to say that. And, and a bludgeon, because it, it's a, a rhetorical move. It doesn't even pretend to be a scientific policy-based argument. It doesn't go into cause and effect. It asserts causes that never have to actually be specified or demonstrated. We're all supposed to know that it's a fault of something called structural racism, which is abetted by an environment of, quote, white supremacy, an ideology of white, quote, unquote, white supremacy that characterizes the society. It explains everything. Confronted with any racial disparity, the answer is it's caused by quote, structural racism, close quote. History, I would argue, is complicated. And many of these things that we're talking about have multiple interwoven, interacting causes and and so on, from culture to politics, to economic incentives, to historical accident, to environmental influence, and also to the nefarious uh, doings of particular individuals who may or may not be racist or to you know, systems of uh, law and policy that may have the consequence of disadvantaging racial groups without having so been intended. So I want to know what they're talking about. When they say structural racism, they beg the question. They don't tell me what they're talking about. It's a disposition. It, it, it calls me to solidarity. It, it, it asks me for my fealty, for my affirmation of, of, a, of a system of belief. So I, I think it's a mischievous way of talking, especially in the university, although I understand why it might work well on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. You just said there a system of belief. And I think one of the things you've hinted at previously is that there's a religious, almost a religious aspect to some of this discussion where it becomes a, re- a religious conviction that structural racism is this imperceptible but incredibly powerful force that influences almost every sphere of life. And it often doesn't stack up. So in the United Kingdom, for example, we now hear Black Lives Matter influenced activists talking about structural racism in the UK in relation to education and employment, overlooking the fact that it is actually incredibly complicated. So kids from a West Indian background do pretty badly in education, but kids from a white working class background tend to do even worse. Kids from an Indian background or a Chinese background are successful. Also, Nigerian descended children and young adults are doing well in education and employment too. So it's clearly a complicated picture that cannot be explained by a conscious attempt to hold back non-white people. And I'm sure there's a similar situation in the US. And you've talked before about how the structural racism idea has even been used to explain 
why Asians are doing quite well in universities and the educational sphere in comparison to African-American communities, it strikes me that one of the impacts of the structural racism mantra is to overlook possible cultural influences and cultural dynamics and things that might be happening within certain communities that are not necessarily very positive. And do do you think the cry of racism becomes in some ways an attempt to deflect attention from problems that are not actually caused by racism, but might spring from communities themselves? Yes, in a word. (laughs) I I would say, though, that there's a second order argument, which is that even those problems within the communities are themselves a reflection of processes that were governed by structural racism. So you're not quite there. There is certainly an aversion to cultural argument. You know, if I say that the Asian immigrants, I don't know the UK so well, but I know the US and they are overrepresented amongst those who are doing very well in academic, you know, getting into the universities and so on. They're overrepresented in the sciences and in some of the professions like medicine and engineering. And if I were to say that that was due to the way that children are raised to filial piety, to, uh, you know, the uh, parental supervision, to the uh, esteem or value that's placed on academic excellence, to the extent to which hard work is thought to be the right anecdote to any setback rather than complain about mistreatment. If I were to point to Confucianism or anything and and use that as a basis. Or by contrast, if I were to say single parent families amongst African-Americans, if I were to say a hip hop oriented culture of uh, titillation and sexual risque, if I were to say violence that is bred and produced and reproduced within certain enclaves of the society or astronomical abortion rates amongst the uh, female population that are childbearing age comparison and point out racial disparities in those dimensions of behavior and then to say that that had something to do with the problem, people would become very upset. You say religion, and and that's the metaphor that my conversation partner and my podcast, uh, John McWhorter, I want to give him credit because it's really kind of his thing. But I do agree. I mean, there are identity stakes. People have an investment, both as African-American victims of structural racism, but also as sympathetic and allied white American liberals and progressives who see themselves as wanting to be on the right side of history, they have a catechism. There are things that you are and are not supposed to say. We're supposed to avoid microaggressions. We're all supposed to be for particular ideas. You know, affirmative action is not supposed to be criticized, for example. We're all supposed to be for relatively liberal immigration policy, you know, et cetera. We're all supposed to be hostile to religion or to conservative, culturally conservative religious sentiment and things of this kind. There's a hunt for apostates, people who will in a weak moment say the wrong thing and then they will be identified as not being true believers in the doctrine of the faith and so on. There's excommunication, etc. I don't know what the analog of baptism might be, but, (laughs) you know, of the born again moment when the person finally comes to terms with their racism. There's all this talk about the need for for the nation to come to terms. We need a revival meeting. We need to get back to the true faith. We, I mean, it's more than enough points of, of commonality that I think you can do something with that with that analogy.
I want to come back to that analogy in a moment. But one of the other things I wanted to ask you about in relation to the United States is one of the most signal achievements of Black Lives Matter has been to convince people around the world that the American police are racist and that they execute black people. Now, I know this because my parents are Irish immigrants in the United Kingdom. They're both in their late 60s. They're not interested in politics at all. They never have been. And what they've both been saying to me over the past couple of months since the killing of George Floyd, which was a huge media story in the UK as much as it was in the US, they've both said to me on on various occasions, you know, those police in America, they're so racist. They hate black people. They kill black people all the time. And it really struck me that if even my relatively apolitical parents have imbibed this notion that the American police are irredeemably racist and that they exist almost in order to enact racist policies and racist executions against the black community. If even my parents have imbibed that, then I can understand why so many other people have too. So I wanted to ask you specifically about the problem of police violence in the US, because you have in the past talked about the fact that more white people are killed than black people in narrowly numerical terms. But also you've talked about the problem of racializing violent interactions and the possibility that if woke progressives are going to do that, then, you know, not so woke, possibly racist people on the other side of the political equation will also do likewise. And we'll talk about the scourge of black violence and the scourge of black on black crime and so on. So could you just explain to our listeners how you understand the issue of police violence in the US and whether you think it's useful to see it in racial terms? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And and I would say that if your uh, parents or anyone in the UK is of the view that black people are being hunted by police and executed and so on en masse, and so on. That that can only be the fault of poor reporting on the press in the country. So you're to be commended for your little effort to try to shed some light on this. There are about 1,200 police killings of citizens in the United States in a given year. This, this is carefully documented. There's a database that's kept at the Washington Post newspaper website, for example, which enumerates as best they can determine every single instance of a police killing by uh gun or other means of a citizen, about 1,200 in a year. About 300 of those are African-Americans, about a quarter. uh, And then blacks are about 13 or 14% of the population. So that's an overrepresentation. But it's still a substantial less than a majority of the people who are killed. More whites than blacks are killed by police in the country every year. Maybe 1,200 is too many. I'm prepared to entertain the idea that that's too many police killings of citizens I'd be happy to discuss the training of police, the recruitment of them, the rules of engagement that they have with citizens, the accountability that they should face in the event that they overstep their authority. These are all legitimate questions. And there is a racial disparity, although there's also a racial disparity in Blacks' participation in criminal activity, which has to be reckoned with as well. And I'm not making any claims one way or the other about the existence of discrimination against Blacks and police use of force. This is a debate. There's evidence that could be brought to bear on it that there is some discrimination in police use of force, especially force short of lethal force, I think is a fairly demonstrable proposition. 
But as far as police killings, we're talking about maybe 300 people a year who are African-American. Now, they're not all unarmed. They are not simply walking down the street. Many of them are engaged in conflict with the police officers, including deadly conflict, which leads to their being killed. But some of them are instances like George Floyd, which are problematic in the extreme without any question and deserve the scrutiny of concerned persons. I'm I'm not trying to get away from that whatsoever. But the scale of it, you have to think about the fact that this is a country of 300 million people. We have scores upon scores of concentrated urban areas where the police are interacting with the citizens on a daily basis. There are tens of thousands of encounters between police and citizens on a daily basis in the United States. So these events, which are often extremely regrettable events and often do not reflect well on the police, are nevertheless rare. They are rare events. I mean, to put it in perspective, there are about 7,500 homicides in the United States every year, 7,500. About nearly half of them are Black committing homicide. And the vast majority of those are of other Blacks. So there are an order of magnitude more instances of Blacks meeting their end through homicide committed by other Blacks than there are uh, Blacks meeting their end through the actions of the police. Again, which is not to lose sight of the significance of holding the police accountable for how it is they wield their power vis-a-vis citizens. But it's very easy to overstate the extent and the significance of this phenomenon, uh, which I think has been done. I completely agree with that. I I want to also, excuse me, Brendan, address your question about the racialization of these events, Mm. because these events are regrettable regardless of the race of the people. When we invoke the race, we say the officer was white and the dead young man is black. We act as if the reason that the officer acted as he did was because the dead young man was black. And we don't necessarily know that. And moreover, if we get into the habit of racializing these events, then we we may lose the ability to contain that racialization to merely the instances where white police officers kill black citizens. We may find ourselves soon enough in a world where we're talking about black criminals killing white unarmed victims. And that's a world I think no one should welcome because there are many, many such instances of black criminals harming white people, but they are criminals harming people and they should be dealt with accordingly. They don't stand in for their race when they do so. Neither should the victims understand themselves primarily in racial terms if they happen to be white and a black criminal steals their automobile or beats them up and takes their wallet or breaks into their home and abuses them. That's happening. That's happening on a daily basis in the country. And we don't want to live in a world in which we see all of these events primarily through a racial lens. So people are playing with fire, I think, when they bring that sensibility to police citizen interaction. Absolutely. The George Floyd killing shocked people around the world. And for very good reason. It was an incredibly disturbing video. It was an incredibly disturbing event. And as you said, it was an incredibly problematic event too. But in terms of, you talked there very eloquently about the the relative rarity of these kinds of events in the United States, which has a huge number of people in it. And these kinds of things do not happen particularly often. Perhaps they happen too often, but they don't happen every single day in the way that some people may be led to understand. But I wonder if the reason the George Floyd killing became this American phenomenon and more importantly, a global phenomenon, 
is because it fed into a pre-existing narrative about the the racist nature of the United States, the ideology of white supremacy, and this idea that white supremacy still governs Western nations, not only America, but also the United Kingdom and Belgium and France and other countries too, which have been self-flagellating themselves in response to the George Floyd killing. So do you think the phenomenon that followed the killing of George Floyd is in some ways independent of the killing of George Floyd. So it wasn't simply a statement of disagreement or horror with that particular killing, but it fed into a pre-existing narrative about the wickedness of white society and the victim nature of African-American people. Yeah, again, I think uh, you said a lot right there, and I think you said it pretty well. I agree with the thesis, which is that the upheaval that has ensued from the killing of George Floyd was instigated by, but is not necessarily entirely rooted in the event that happened to George Floyd. It was a catalytic agent that served to foster a certain sensibility that has a life of its own. Yes, I think that's true. There are a number of uh, different things that are going on. Just stop killing us is what the kids are saying, what the young people are saying, the Black Lives Matter enthusiasts, they're just saying, just stop killing us. Parents are having to talk. They're having to talk with their kids, telling them you're black. If the police officer comes to you, you must comport yourself in a particular way because you're you're definitely at risk. Citizens are constructing advocates, the police departments, as intrinsically enemies of the people. So, yeah, I, I do think that that's going on. Okay. I want to now ask you about white people and particularly this notion that white people are a problem. So if, if if we look at individuals like Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, and I had the pleasure, shall we say, of being on a TV show in the UK with Robin D'Angelo last year, talking about her book, White Fragility, and trying to push back against this notion that all white people are racist, that it is some kind of social infection that white people suffer from. And what struck me speaking to Robin D'Angelo, and I think this taps into some of the stuff we've seen over the past few months following the killing of George Floyd and the protests that have taken place. What struck me when I was speaking with her is that a lot of this movement is not driven, in fact, by a genuinely progressive view that we should have complete racial equality or color blindness and that everyone should have equality of opportunity but rather is driven in large part by white self-loathing and this notion among particularly upper-class whites that they are a disgusting group of people, they are responsible for every crime in history, that we have a collective guilt for the killing of George Floyd. That argument has been pushed in many quarters. And I, I wonder to what extent do you see this what we've seen over the past few months, not so much as an anti-racist movement, an anti-racist movement is a fine thing. We're all against racism, but rather as a means through which upper-class white people have sought to express their own mental or therapeutic confusions and their own despising for history and, and so on. You could be doing the interview with yourself there, Brendan. <laughs> I, I think you're touching all the bases and, and rather rather well done as well. I'm not being a white person. I can't speak to that from a personal point of view, though it is an extremely appealing hypothesis to me, the one that you proffer, a kind of self-loathing. But I wonder if it can only be that. I wonder if the 
part that we see from the progressively dominated institutions of the academy and the media isn't but one side of whiteness. If the Robin D'Angelo, white guilt, white fragility, white apologia, white privilege view of the world cannot exist except also to give birth to a white pride reaction against that, even if the latter is never overtly expressed because it's politically incorrect to say so. In other words, if confronted with someone who was constantly bludgeoning me, I'm imagining myself a white person now, <laughs> and there I'm being constantly bludgeoned about the evils of colonialism, tear down the statue of Cecil Rhodes, apologize for what you did to the third world, people of color are old, etc., etc., etc. I might begin to ask myself, exactly on what foundations does human civilization in the 21st century stand? I might begin to enumerate the great works of philosophy, of mathematics, and of science that allow modern medicine to exist, that constitute the core of our knowledge about the universe, et cetera, et cetera. I might begin to tick off the great artistic achievements, the architectural innovations, the paintings, the symphonies, et cetera, okay? And then I might begin to ask these people, these people of color, who think that they can simply stomp on me, where is their civilization? Mm. Now, everything I just said is absolutely racist. It's absolutely white supremacist. I don't believe it myself. I'm not embodying that position. I'm simply saying that if I were a white person, it might tempt me. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't help but think that it's tempting a lot of people. Now, you can wag your finger at them all you want. But in a way, they are a part of the package. If you're going to go down this route, you've got to expect this. How can I make whiteness into a center of a moral indictment without also occasioning it to be the basis of a pride and a sense of self-identity and an affirmation? So the, the right idea, says Glenn Lowry, is the idea of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and But the right idea is transcending our particularisms and seeing the universality of our humanity and and whatnot. The right idea is if only fitfully and by step by step we march toward the goal to maintain sight of the goal. Color blindness, my worth is not contingent upon my racial inheritance. My worth comes from my spirit as a human being, if you're religious, from my in the sight of God, all being equal, whatever it might be. You don't have to be religious to get this idea, that's the right idea, it seems to me. And it's the only way to do this kind of thing without running into chauvinism. You know, if you're going to have anti-whiteness, you're going to have white chauvinism. I think that's one of the key problems with the white fragility, white self-loathing, Robin DiAngelo worldview. She's not the only person who pushes this by any stretch of the imagination. In many ways, it's a very mainstream idea now in universities and, and politics and publishing. But the, the the problem I have with this constant goading of white people to see themselves as white people and to understand their worldview and uh, everything they experience and everything they do as being a product of their whiteness, the problem I have with that is that it, it actually 
explicitly encourages people to conceive of themselves as being white and to see themselves as belonging to the white race. And I think there is actually a lot of crossover between people like Robin D'Angelo, who would describe herself as anti-racist, and people like Richard Spencer, who is clearly racist. And, and the crossover is that they both conceive of the white race as a singular clear thing. And they both conceive of the white race as something that has its own interests. Now, Richard Spencer thinks its interests is to cut itself off from everyone else and create an ethno-nationalist state, which is clearly an, an explicitly racist idea. Whereas Robin D'Angelo thinks its interests is best served by self-flagellation and a self-reckoning and a kind of therapeutic understanding of the poisonousness of whiteness. But both of them treat white people as belonging to a race. And I think it's an incredibly dangerous road to go down. And as you say, it could very easily open the door to, you know, white shame could very easily give rise to a counter movement of white pride, which strikes me as a particularly problematic idea. We are in agreement about that. I think people are going to say white people knew that they were white before they got reminded that they were white by the <laughs> anti-racism movement. They knew that they were white when they were enslaving in the uh, North American situation, the Africans and so on. They knew that they were white when they assimilated the Catholic or Jewish immigrants from South and East Europe to the governing coalition of non-black, non-brown people. And they go on like that. But I think in the United States, one problem that they have is the Asians. I think they got a big problem. I think since the liberalization of American immigration laws in the mid-1960s, just as important, I think, for the future of the country as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the liberalization, the deracialization of America's uh, immigration control regime. We've had tens of millions of people from East and South Asia, as well as from Latin America, and some from the Caribbean and some from Africa, but a large number of people have come to this country. And the net result of that, on the whole, is an amazing world historic success story of the assimilation of ethnically distinct population, racially distinct, if you will, intermarriage rates through the roof. You know, 30, 40 percent of Asian-American young women married to Anglo uh, white uh, men and so on. Penetration into the professions and all of that. Uh, accumulation of wealth, educational achievement. Of course, they're not a random draw on the global population. They're selective flow of people coming. They come with capital. They come with their values and their culture and so forth like that. But the society here was and has been and is open to them not without some problem somewhere. And there will be people who would remind me of the anti-Asian sentiment that met the Chinese who built the railroads in the late 19th century and the Japanese internment in the mid 20th century. They would remind me of these things. I'm aware of these things. I don't gloss over them, not in the least, but I'm saying this is the real world that we live in. Name another country on the planet where so many people with differences of this kind could be so effectively assimilated into the population over the course of a lifetime. So they've got a problem. Okay, I want to ask you about the issue of agency, because following on from the discussion of white fragility and white self-loathing, it strikes me that one of the things that I think is most interesting and worrying about the current moment is there is so much emphasis on 
the need for white people to correct themselves and change themselves or, or to be corrected by their employers. We know that numerous corporations are buying up copies of White Fragility and other books like Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race and all these other you know, the, the great cash cow in the publishing industry right now are books about the uh, the horrid nature of whiteness. And we know that corporations are buying these books up and, and using them as a means of disciplining and re-educating the workforce. And one of the things that strikes me about this moment is that there is so much emphasis on the need for self-correction within the white community. That ends up doing something that is quite racist in my view, which is demeaning the agency of black communities and demeaning the agency of black people who are increasingly seen as being utterly dependent on the attitudes of whites, utterly dependent on the necessity of white self-correction. And there is very little sense that it is possible for a black individual or a black community to exercise its autonomy and to strive for something different than what currently exists. So I wonder if if you think that the current focus on white supremacy actually acts as an anti-black form of politics in the sense that it suggests that black people are just sitting around, you know, victims, useless, not very good at anything. And it will only be the moment at which white people have a moment of self-realization that black people will be liberated from this torpor that they find themselves in. So do you think there's a relationship between this focus on white supremacy and this creeping woke negation of black agency? Yes, again, and and again, you're you're doing a good job with the interview. I, I think you're raising all the important points, and also then making statements that I might have made myself. <laughs> I, I I agree with the sense. I mean, I would add something. I would add that there's a kind of assumption of black fragility, or at least black lack of resilience in this whole thing. We're all like children. We're like infants that you dare not touch. You dare not say the wrong word in front of us. You dare not ask any question or offend us, or or else we'll be so impacted by that will be so wounded, so hurt, you know, and so on. Quite apart from that, the assumption that black people don't have resilience and therefore cannot be dealt with like grownups and disagreed with, criticized, called to account, asked for anything. Uh, No one will ask black people, what do you owe America? How about that one? Uh, how about not not just what does America owe us reparations for say, well, what do we owe America? How, how How about duty? How about honor? So there's that. But there are a couple of things I want to say. One of them is when you take agency away from people, you remove the possibility of holding them to account and the capacity to maintain judgment and standards so that you can evaluate what they do. If every black youngster has no choice about whether or not to join a gang, pick up a gun and become a criminal because the society has failed him by not providing adequate housing, health care, income support, job opportunities and so forth then it becomes possible to discriminate as between the black youngsters who do and do not pick up guns and become members of gang in those conditions to maintain within the African-American society a judgment of each other's behavior and a affirmation of standards of expectation because after all, we're all victims. We're all kind of leveled down to a common lack of agency, lack of control over ourselves, lack of accountability for what we do, condition of dependency. Another point I want to make is there's a deep irony in first declaring society to be systemically and essentially racist and then 
mounting a campaign to demand of the society that they recognize their own racism and that they deliver you from the consequences of it. After all, if indeed you're right that they are racist, your oppressors are racist, why would you expect them to respond to a moral appeal? You're putting yourself on the mercy of the court, so to speak, and you think the court is biased. So, you know, some of the arguments that I've seen people make that have become very widely accepted, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates comes to mind, the author of this book, Between the World and Me, an open letter to his son, where he basically preaches to his son that the society is so unrelentingly determined to deny the son's humanity that he must never lose sight of the fact that he's a hated, hunted species of, of human there's no hope. There's no possibility. Don't believe in the American dream. Don't don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't buy the narrative. Don't don't believe the hype. This kind of idea It's disempowering. It's, it's disempowering in the extreme. So, yes, I, I think those things are true. I think that's one of the most powerful arguments you make, which is the disempowering impact that this new politics has on people. Because and in my mind, that makes it incredibly distinctive from what we would have considered positive movements in the past, whether it was Harriet Tubman's movement or the arguments put forward by Frederick Douglass or the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, which were about, firstly, they were about collectivity, people coming together en masse to demand changes, structural changes, but they were also about individual self-respect and the exercise of individual autonomy and this belief that you as an individual could make differences, particularly if you were aligned with a, a larger group of people who shared your views. And I think the contrast between those kinds of movements and what we have now, which is this, as you say, relentless argument that everyone is out to get you, society hates you, there's really very little that you can do uh, except wait around for white people to have an awakening. And, and you know, we have a similar argument in the United Kingdom as well, in fact. And one of the arguments in the UK is that black people and Muslims in particular, one of the arguments that woke activists will make is that black people and Muslim people face unfixable barriers. It really is nothing that you can do about it. Society hates you. Mainstream society hates you. We are full of Islamophobia. We're full of racism and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think people underestimate just what a disempowering, self-negating impact that has on certain communities when you exaggerate the problems that they face and exaggerate the barriers that they face and encourage them to see themselves completely at odds with mainstream society. So do you think it's it's as simple as arguing that we need a more a positive appraisal and we need a, a you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps i mean that is a it's a bit of a cliche and and as you've argued over the years there are still problems there are still structural issues even if it might not be structural racism but do you think there's a lot to be said for encouraging the exercise of autonomy against this culture which encourages people to wallow in a sense of victimhood yeah i i do although i'm not so hopeful about it as a political matter <laughs> I, I think if you know <laughs> this would be the worst case scenario for a left of center american Trump were to win re-election uh, comfortably and perhaps even bring along the House of Representatives and then everything were to go dark. 
okay, politically for a progressive if everything were to go dark. And we were put in a situation where instead of the main voice trumpeted through the dominant media organs were affirming our narrative of lament, we confronted unrelenting criticism from those organs. This is all hypothetical. I'm not hoping that it would be so. I'm just saying were it to happen, Trump's reelection grandly, uh, a kind of turning of the wheel and a kind of cultural upheaval adverse to Africa, so that it got very, very dark. Then you're left to nothing but to pull up your bootstraps. It would be a little bit like how things were after the emancipation here 150 years ago, where, you know, there was a brief moment of reconstruction, uh, sort of pro-Friedman sentiment, but it got washed away and the dark night of Jim Crow emerged and blacks were set back. But they were set back in a way that also led to the development of some of the greatest achievements of uh, African-American history, the, the fact that the freedmen were largely illiterate, the, the slaves who were let out of slavery in 1863, 1865, were almost universally illiterate. Within a half century, I don't know the number exactly, but you've got a literacy rate that rivals in terms of its increase anything that's been seen in the modern world of a mass population acquiring the capacity to read. Now, we may think that that's nothing, but it's something really very significant. It brings them into the modern world. We look at the black family lamenting perhaps the high rate of birth to mothers who are not married and so forth, but that is a modern post-1960 phenomenon. In fact, the health of the African-American social fiber coming out of slavery was remarkable. There have been books written about this. Businesses were built. People acquired land. People educated their children. People acquired skills. They constantly faced opposition at every step along the way. No blacks need apply, white only this and that and the other. And nevertheless, they built a foundation from which you could launch something like a civil rights movement in the mid 20th century, which would change the politics of the country. So that potentiality is now in a way forgotten as we throw ourselves, as I say, on the mercy of the court. There's nothing we can do. We're prostrate here. Our kids are, are not doing as well. Our, our communities are troubled, but here we are, and, and we ask that you save us. And this is this very same population about which this noble history could be told. So pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That, that is a uh, kind of cliche, and people will laugh when you say it, and they'll roll their eyes and whatnot. Take responsibility for your life. No one's coming to save you. It's not anybody else's job to raise your children. It's not anybody else's job to pick the trash up from in front of your home, et cetera, et cetera. Take responsibility for your life. It's not fair. And this is another, I think, delusion. People think there's some God up in the sky that's going to make sure everything works out fair. Life is full of tragedy and atrocity and barbarity and, and so on. It's not fair. It's not fair. But it's the way of the world. If you want to walk with dignity, if you want to be truly equal, people talk about equality. White people cannot give black people equality. Black people have to actually earn equal status. I, I, please don't get angry with me because I'm on the side of black people here. But I'm saying equality of dignity, equality of standing and respect, equality of feeling secure in your position in society, equality of being able to command the respect of others. That's not something that can be handed over to you. That's something that you have to rest with the hard work, with your bare hands, 
You have to make yourselves equal. No one can make you equal. Well, I completely agree with that. Okay, I have a, just a couple more questions and then we'll be done. I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier about the, the treatment of black people almost as children. And I think this, this infantilization of black people is particularly clear in relation to political correctness and particularly politically correct censorship. Now, you've been criticizing politically correct self-censorship for more than 20 years, much longer than some of the the Johnny-come-latelys to the issue of woke censorship. And it strikes me that one of the issues with this PC form of self-censorship I think there's something racist in it because if you look at, I mean, I know this from speaking on British universities, they will often say that there are some communities within the campus who are particularly sensitive to criticism or particularly sensitive to the expression of certain words and certain ideas. And they often mean minority communities, black communities, gay communities, women often. And I think one of the problems with that form of censorship and this notion that there are some things that are unsayable and some words that are unexpressible is that it contributes, I think, to the infantilization of black people in particular who who are seen as needing to have their eyes covered and their ears protected from potentially controversial ideas. Do you see that as one of the issues with politically correct censorship. I, I do. I do. Uh, you speak of the N-word, the word that's not supposed to be uttered. For example, we're supposed to be very careful in talking about racial differences in certain social indicators like IQ test scores or whatever. The police commissioner of the city of New York was not permitted to speak here at Brown some years ago. It was 2013, 2014, when he was invited to speak because of the policy of racial profiling which was objected to as being racist and which he had, this is the police commissioner of New York, Ray Kelly, at the time he had promoted the policy. In any case, I mention this because there was a big controversy at the school because a speaker, a distinguished speaker was not permitted to speak. He was shouted down. And that should be a disciplinary matter for the school because we have rules about not being able to do that. But the students who participated in that event were not disciplined and the faculty report that it partly exonerated them said that they reasonably expected to be injured by the speech of this uh, government official. He, after all, advocated policies, in this case, use of racial profiling to police the city of New York, to which they objected. Stop and frisk policing is what I should say. Stop in searching suspects who might be carrying weapons, disproportionately impacting blacks, widely thought to be a racist policy by some, also widely thought to be an effective way of getting guns off the street by others. But in any case... What I'm calling attention to is the faculty's argument that students had to be kept safe from the injurious consequences of hearing these arguments to be made, to which my thought was, my God, we're university. Wrong arguments have to be heard so they can be refuted. Did you not ever read John Stuart Mill? You know, they did not come here to be comforted. They came here to be educated. Educated is essentially subversive and disruptive. It is, by definition, if it's effective, going to make us feel uncomfortable. So there's something very, very wrong about this in general, this therapeutic idea about what is the university for students as a whole, but especially, I think, for students of color who need to be toughened and and called forward to the fullness of their potential rather than treated like they were infants. 
But there's a condescension. I can't say this to you because I know you wouldn't be able to take it. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you what I really think because, after all, you're weak and vulnerable, and I don't want to add to your injury by telling you what I really think. I'll look the other way. Let's say you have affirmative action in the university, and you lower the standards, and you bring in some students of color, and they don't do so well. This happens. Let's say that you are pushed to hire more executives in your department at your workplace and you bring in an employee and you comes time to give them an evaluation of their work and you don't tell them what you really think because they're of color and you don't want to stymie their career you don't want to precipitate a conflict maybe it's a personal interest that you don't want the trouble of them complaining that you discriminated against them you just want to take the easiest path maybe you think you're helping them but you're really not treating them seriously and they can never be actually equal. They can only be your client. They they can only be dependent upon a dispensation in which you grant them something. They never actually stand on their own. So, well, you could call it racist, actually. If if I were given to throwing around that epithet, I could could call it racist. I think one of the things that people forget about John Stuart Mill, as you've just mentioned him, is, is this argument which actually infuses the history of of liberalism and the history of the idea of freedom of speech in particular, which is the only way we can know that we are right is by subjecting our beliefs and our values to public questioning, public criticism, even public ridicule, because otherwise what we believe is is just a dogma. If you, if you believe it because you know it's right, it's just a dogma. You need to test it. You need to keep it on its toes. You need to refresh it. You need to make sure that it is foolproof and you can only do that in the conditions of freedom of speech. But one, Let me interject something because you use the word ridicule and I think it's very important. The modern day woke sensibility is often ridiculous. They they often take positions that are absurd. Now, if I were to draw a political cartoon, of course, I would not make an image of the prophet Muhammad and and treat him disrespectfully. I wouldn't do that. Okay, although I would defend to the death the right of somebody to do that. I don't think we can have a order in which we suppress people from doing that. But I wouldn't do that. But. To show some of the absurdity of some of the claims that these woke progressives are making, it seems to me a very fit way of doing so is lampooning it, is making fun of it, is uh, caricaturing it. Now, to be told that I can't put that cartoon in the student newspaper, I can't write that whimsical op-ed piece, I cannot produce that sitcom in an episode in a television series that lampoons some of this idiocy because it would hurt black people, is not only treating black people like their children, it's debasing the currency of our contemporary order. It, it, it means that we are not able to have the literature that we should have, that we're not, we're not able to have the this, this sharpness of critical reflection on our contemporary times. Ridicule and lampooning is an essential element of the larger, you know, palette of literary instruments available to really gain an understanding of our lives together here. And a lot of this stuff is ridiculous. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, final question. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about the Harper's letter, following on from what we've just been talking about and your reluctance to sign it. And I thought one of the reasons you gave was incredibly interesting, which is that you would challenge the idea. Now, I can't believe I'm bringing up Donald Trump at the very end of a discussion. That's a very bad idea. But 
One of the the reasons you gave is that this notion that Trump is the gravest threat to democracy in the Western world, and and you made the point that actually it was the rash often unhinged response to Donald Trump's election in 2016, which gave rise to this kind of stifling, censorious culture that we currently live in. I completely agree with you on that. And I remember seeing protests against Trump in the United Kingdom, at which in which anyone who supported Trump was called Hitler. The, these rednecks were the scum of the earth. And anyone who expressed any kind of support for Trump should just be silenced and cancelled immediately. So yeah. could you just uh, briefly Well, you've explain. done it again. You've done it again, Brendan. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. No, seriously, seriously. Let me answer. Let me answer you. I wanted to sign the Harper's letter because I was very much in agreement with the sentiment that the cancel culture is out of hand and needs mm-hmm. to be uh, reined in. But I couldn't sign it because they went out of their way to set Trump up as the greatest threat to democracy and then to bounce off of that and say, notwithstanding that, that there are other threats as well, some of them on the left. And I thought they got it exactly backwards. <laughs> it's that the success of Trump has in, has produced a reaction amongst his enemies, which is a threat to democracy. Trump's election was democratic. However tragic for the country it might have been, it was nevertheless the outcome of the duly constituted processes of voting and uh, elective selection and the production of a president of the United States. Their argument, I've been saying this for years, is with the people who voted for Trump in all of those states where he won narrowly, who were dissatisfied with whatever they're dissatisfied with. Of course, it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all throughout the world, this populist sentiment that's happening. Right-wing movements have risen up in countries all across. I can't tell you anything about that in Europe. This is a broader thing that's going on. They're mad at those people. They're, they're mad at the cultural conservatives. They're mad at the Christian right. They're, they're mad at the people who want a border and don't want to see the Central Americans just walking into the country. They're mad at the people who are in these dusty towns in the central part of the country who's lost their jobs and their livelihoods and so forth and who have in, embraced Donald Trump. They're mad at the people who think make America great again was a good slogan. That's 40, 45 percent, maybe on a given day, 48 percent of the population of the United States of America. And when Trump, their tribune, an imperfect vehicle, to be sure, rose to power, the the left went insane. The New York (laughs) Times became not any longer a good newspaper that you could read for an objective reporting on what was going on. But um, an organ on behalf of a crusade to save the country from the outcome of an election. So when the Harper's letter says Trump is the greatest threat to democracy, my thought was, no, Trump is democracy. Sorry, vote him out of office. An election is coming soon. He doesn't have to be there after that election, but he did get there through an election. He is democracy. And it's your reaction against him that is constituting a threat to precious institutions like the New York Times, which I feel is destroying itself as a credible paper of record here in the United States by its one-sided kind of treatment of every issue that's come along. I could tick off the issues from the impeachment to Russiagate, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I thought, and that's why I didn't sign that letter. Glenn Larry, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brendan O'Neill. It's been fun.
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.